Listening to the Northern Football Podcast with Ben Steiner, Peter Galindo, and Alexander Gonge Ruzic. Hey there, and welcome, folks, back into episode 109 of the Northern Football Podcast. It's Alex Gonge Ruzic, Peter Galindo, alongside Ben Steiner here. Please remember to rate, subscribe, review, and follow us on all social medias. It's sincerely appreciated. And, well, we're back. For the third podcast in a week or so, because we had our emergency podcast, it's certainly not been an easy week for Canadian soccer, both at the national team level and the club level. The Canadian women still at odds with the association, the men piping up earlier today, the alumni of the women's national team piping up. So it's certainly a dramatic time in Canadian soccer, but we're back here and uh, Alex is cooking once again. He is, except these were his leftovers this time. But even no. despite that, uh, it's still delicious. His Valentine's Day dinner leftovers. Yeah, no, no original content for you guys today, but no. that's... Um, You're slacking now. You're starting to... Actually, that's a lie. Homemade banana bread. That's true. That's eat. true. Can knock And mousse. Yes. Chocolate mousse as well. All, so all that was leftover. You, you, you might have decided to go sloppy seconds for the dinner, but you decided to go original for the dessert, so you're kind of upping your game in a way. Yeah, well, that's it. The food, different occasion, different situation, for special someone, but you guys got to enjoy the, the fruits of that labor. So. We did, shamelessly, hey, I might add. Never a bad thing. No. Someone had to eat it. Well, adapting to the situation under pressure certainly not a bad thing, and something that the Canadian Soccer Association is struggling to do right now is adapt to the situation under pressure, and there's been lots of developments in the women's national team against the CSA over the last few days. The players returned to training after threatening to sue and will play the She Believes Cup. Legal action was threatened against the Canadian women's national team. They wanted to go on strike. They did for about a day, and they a few of the team representatives, well, they spoke to the media on a Canadian Soccer Players Association media call. The legal representatives of Canada Soccer were there making a little bit of an awkward situation, but they were quite impassionate when speaking to the Canadian media. Uh, and it's clear that they don't really want to be playing for the Canadian Soccer Association right now. They got back to training today at Exporia Stadium in Orlando, most of them with gear just either flipped backwards or with the crest taken off. Um, the CSB said they're willing to provide incremental resources to Canada Soccer to help further its mission in a statement that they released on Monday, a rare statement that you hear from the CSB mm. most of the time you don't. And Mark Noonan made a, a, an appearance on One Soccer with Andy Petrillo, which is interesting to say the least, considering the involvement of, of One Soccer and CSB. And then the Canadian women's national team players had a press conference as well, asking for more equality and transparency. Sophie Schmidt in that press conference also announced that she will retire from international soccer after the World Cup, but was talked back from the edge of retirement from Christine Sinclair just a few days ago. And good on her, I guess, for, you know, obviously sticking it out and wanting to fight for what they believe is right and, and for obviously sticking around till the World Cup because, you know, it might be nice to also go on a bit of a high if they manage to make a deep run and who knows, maybe even win the damn thing, right? So kind of funny too that that was almost like the main takeaway from the press conference overall was that like, oh, she's going to announce her retirement. And meanwhile, there were all these other topics to touch mm -hmm. on, which I found quite fascinating. 
Yeah, and I mean, kind of exemplified the situation that obviously we're, it's one of those retirements where, you know, Sophie Schmidt, Desiree Scott, Christine Sinclair, this generational player, isn't going to be around together uh, forever, of course, as we know, but someone like Sophie Schmidt has almost had a bit of a late career resurgence, you could almost say, where the Houston Dash had uh, one of her best seasons uh, in a while, at least, one of her best seasons last year. Uh, improved a lot was one of like the players player of the year something for Houston Dash just kind of showing uh, how appreciated her contributions were so the fact that yeah in what has been a bit of a second prime you can almost say the fact yeah. she's considering retiring also kind of also shows just how bad things are someone Sophie Schmidt over 200 caps one of the rare members to hit that club for Canada uh, certainly loyalty isn't an issue for I, I think no, to, to, to an, back in 2021 didn't even crack the original 18-player Olympic squad uh, yet, despite you know having every reason to be like, look, I'm you know I'm a little older, I, I could stay home, I have no reason to head out to to Japan. She stuck it out. She said, I'll play whatever role I need to play for the team. Uh, fortunately, of course, the squads are expanded to 22. She did see the field. She won gold, etc. But just that again, that willing to make that sacrifice at the age that she did a couple years ago and this summer as well. Like it's going to be an uphill battle to, to make the squad just because there's so much going on in midfield. But to see her still committed to the team, but that close to walking across the line just really shows how stark things are if you had any questions of you know where, where the women stand on this. is a tough issue and one that obviously, like Christine Sinclair called it, the most important fight of their careers. And considering what some of them have gone through, it says a lot. And I mean, on the field, Sophie Schmidt has had a complete resurgence over the last 12 months, 18 months or so, because approaching those Olympic Games in 2021, she was basically on the outs of the national team, right? And she <clears throat> is very much in the squad now, and you imagine that she'll probably crack the World Cup squad now that she's said that she's going to retire after the tournament. Um, but there's competition there. She's not a lock for a starting position. She can't necessarily start at her age either, but to just have her around in terms of that leadership is is certainly important for the Canadian women's national team. But for me, when the women's national team representatives spoke to the media, it was this quote from Janine Becky that stood out and I know it caught a lot of people's eyes as well. Uh, it's pretty disgusting that we're having to ask just to be treated equally. It's a fight that women all over the world have had to partake in every single day. Quite frankly, we're really sick of hearing it and it's something that I don't even get disappointed by anymore. I just get angry because it's 2023. We won the damn Olympic Games and we're about to go to the World Cup with a team that could win it. So we expect to be prepared in the best way possible to go and win a World Cup. And I mean, those words just kind of sum up the frustration that the women's national team is in right now. When we look at the financial report, yes, there is a massive discrepancy in terms of expenditure between the men and the women. And I feel like there's two sides to each of these explanations as we go on, which is what kind of brings it all back to the whole transparency thing. Yes, the men had more put towards them in 2021. They also had to play, I believe it was 18 or 20 games in 2021. And some of the money that the women used for funding came from the Own the Podium program. But as we said in our emergency podcast, the question isn't so much like, hey, how much money was spent? It was, where did that money go? Where was it allocated to? Where is all this money being allocated to? And that's really the crux of the issue that we now have in this regard. Because, look, I can play devil's advocate here and say, like, well, maybe this is why you see such a, a big difference in the spending. But then it also kind of goes back to the point of 
yeah, but where did all this other money go that was supposed to go towards the women's program? Because that is what Own the Podium is dedicated solely towards. Like, you can get FIFA grants and then invest it in different areas of the Federation, but Own the Podium is solely CanWN team money. So where did it go? Yeah, and I mean, look, one thing regarding this whole debate that's, you know, worth noting, yes, a lot of the financial details are important, um, but when it comes to, you know, matters of spend over the last years, you look at the, say, the discrepancy in 2021, you can argue, okay, the, the men played more games, they had to travel to more places, et cetera, et cetera. They also don't play commercial anymore, is but it, I think the women do, so there's, again, like, okay, why is that the case? Which, again, you know? that, that's a discrepancy that shouldn't exist, but you look in terms of the which, you know, spend more, et cetera, et cetera. You could go into hammer out those, those details and where, you know, those sorts of issues are certainly there. But what's most pressing, I'd say, about or most, you know, the, the important part to note about all this is what Becky mentions. It's important to to see the fact that she's talking about throw out the money out the window. It's a matter of equal, like in terms of equal opportunity for a team in a World Cup. You're the fact they're talking about cut staff, cut training players, having to cut training, like training sessions out yes. of windows, home games. That's the biggest thing to me because you can't. You can go into the you know this whole argument about uh, oh the financials of twenty twenty one money in money out that's a whole different discussion. You could talk about okay where is this money source coming in. You could talk about okay um, you you know where is the CSB money where is the you know the, the the grant money that Canada gets from the government they own the podium. You can get into all that. That's a whole other discussion. Okay where is that money? But I just find it stark that you know they're sitting there talking about things that this is a team. That's going into a marquee, it's marquee tournament, a, a tournament has a chance to win. And they're sitting there talking about, we just want staff. We want <laughs> we want training sessions. We want home games, especially, yeah, you look at the the men's side. And, you know, the Janine, another Janine Becky quote that stood out from the availability was mentioning her on the ground in Doha, obviously doing a great job on the telly as an analyst, seeing, oh, when they saw the, the men's squads, they're like, oh, this is what a fully staffed, squad or, or I guess like team looks like when you have all the staff that you need all the analysts all the etc etc mm -hmm. and that sort of information is, is huge because yeah you could talk about the financial details and again it's super important and there's a lot of discrepancies to assess there but these sorts of matters in terms of just providing staff players equipment games that stuff feels like that's, that's, analysts, yeah. that's the bare minimum it feels like and that's stark because uh, again it's it's, you're talking about a marquee team preparing for a marquee tournament and they're sitting there wondering like do we have enough coaches do we have enough you know training sessions that to me is absurd and I think it's something that's been almost lost in this discussion because there's been a lot of debate you know okay equal pay etc which again an ongoing situation which we hope to reach equal pay similar maybe a deal similar to the US it's also a legal mandate in Canada to actually pay the men's and women's team dollar for dollar equally so by law they have to strike that deal yeah, and again, that's something that's ongoing. That, that that's why it's important. Almost no, this is those are two separate things. Equal pay is mm -hmm. something that's been since June of last year when the whole the first strike happened. It's just yeah, you look at this situation. The fact that they're talking about uh, just that sort of equal opportunity shows how much of a stark difference this is, and like where the real issue lies. That okay, they're really you know the, that's where somewhere Canada soccer it just shows how bad the situation is. That's where I'm going. The, the, how bad it is where they're having to ask for coaches in a world cup year and it just shows how much work needs to be done on that regard without even getting an equal pay 
money, financials, and that other important stuff that will be more long-term. I hear Alexander Gonga Ruzik's available in the summertime if they ever need him. For a coach? Yeah. Well, apparently coaches are jumping into training sessions with the women's national team, which should never happen at that level. But, I mean, you can play. I've played with you. We don't exactly play on a fantastic team right now in terms of results, but it's uh, you can definitely play. Your teammates catching strays here. <laughs> I mean, I... I would be in for a heck of a time trying to chase Julia Gross or Jesse Fleming around. So maybe not. I, I enjoy a chocolate mousse and a banana bread. So I'll, I'll spare myself embarrassment having to chase those uh, world-class players around. Anyways, we'll stop talking about Alex and I's Sunday League team and get into your listener questions. From Steve at Binatch2, most likely outcome regarding CSA, CanWNT, and CanMNT. What main issues besides greater transparency from CSA must be resolved for both teams to focus on the World Cup, Gold Cup, Copa America, and the 2026 Gold Cup. I mean, 2023 World Cup also in there. CSA are playing with fire. We've never had such fan engagement from coast to coast to coast. No. We heard from Sport Minister Pascal Saint-Ange that she's already offered her help. They're going to chat with the CanWNT if they haven't already, because this was from a couple days ago. I'm sure they've already had conversations. She also mentioned that the Heritage Committee is probably going to look into... Canada soccer and its finances. And she said, I quote, I think that it, it, it is a good thing. And she's bang on here because perhaps if the government actually does investigate the players and all of us for that matter, um, will get some sort of clarity regarding the CSA's finances if the government investigates this properly. Uh, I am slightly surprised it hasn't happened sooner considering the Federation does accept government funding, whether it's grants or specifically on the podium, what have you. So if, if there's any accusation of financial secrecy or anything of the sort, it would be up to the government to maybe check in on that. But the fact that this has become such a huge story, PR also plays a part in it, right? Because like the Hockey Canada thing, I think, exploded into a story that was just bigger than a hockey story, bigger than just your typical assault story. Like it, it really encapsulated everything that was wrong with society in a lot of ways, right? And that's why the government intervened. And now we're getting to that way with this story. We know CSB has offered to invest more funds to help the national team, but that is really only a temporary solution. But I honestly do believe, guys, that the lack of transparency, it's the driving factor in all of this. What did Atiba Hutchinson say to us in Vancouver? It, it's a bigger picture issue. It's a lack of transparency thing. Um, so obviously the women discuss inequality in terms of investment and, and all these other topics that we can get into, but overall it all comes back to the transparency issue. Well, I think for now, in terms of this situation in particular, it's simple. It's, it's what I mentioned before in terms of it's sorting out those inequalities so the women's team can focus on the World Cup. Right now their focus is on going to a World Cup doing well. They've mentioned as much. They said they want to just have that opportunity to have the right amount of staff, the right amount of games, the right amount of training sessions. In terms of the long-term questions, that's where the idea of transparency comes in. That's where the mm -hmm. equal pay deal, you know, you talk about that getting brokered. And then, you know, from there, it's okay. How do you get to equal pay? That's where you start to go in the financials. You look at, okay, what's the the deal between, you know, all the parties, CanMNT, CanWNT, the CSA, and then the CS, you know, CSB also gets thrown mm -hmm. in that because you're talking about the revenue stream that's provided there. Uh, so it's one where if we're talking short term in this strike, because uh, it's one that, you know, you mentioned it's uh, happened because the women's team had their budget cut in half. 
you also have to remember that it was mentioned the men also similarly had their budget cut yes, in half. That's so right. that's something where we might see this issue come up in March. Obviously, I don't think the men are going to strike because they have they, can't. they have games that if they pull out of, we'll have this was the ram- issue in June as well. By ram- the way. ramifications that will go far yeah. beyond. You know, you know, legal issues. Mm-hmm. They like you know the women in the women's case, they're avoiding legal issues with the men. This is avoiding potentially being kicked out of FIFA. It's, yes, it's like it could go It could go that far. Uh, so it's obviously very different, but it's going to come back to the same things for the men and the women, sorting that out in the short term. But also, we're talking about a CBA. A CBA is a long term thing. This is a multiple cycle thing, mm-hmm. and that's where you're you know you're looking at what's going on I- I- over the next few years, and that's where we're going to talk about. Can Can WNT, Can MNT, CSA, CSB, all sitting down and striking out a deal that in the end gets that transparency the players want. You know, it gets it gets the CSA getting what they want, the CSB getting what they want. All the parties having a very clear understanding of okay, this is where money goes. This is how much each team are getting. Uh, you know, and hopefully in terms of equal percentages, so it can be true equal pay. And then having all of that sorted for the long term. So it's worth noting that those are two very separate situations. Short term, we're talking about budgets being cut. Where's that money going? Players just focusing on the near here and now. And then long term, it's what started last June. It's those negotiations. It's lawyers. It's transparency and the, all that other stuff we talked about. And as well, the Canadian Soccer Association and the officials leading the Canadian Soccer Association look like they're going to be testifying in front of the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage, and that's the question from Paul Newmark. Given the announcement that the Standing Committee on Canadian Heritage could subpoena CSA execs, board members, and players, do we think we'll get a clear view of the financial picture? Rick Weston of TSN posted CSB sponsor deals could be as high as 15 to $20 million per year, but you do have to remember, 15 to $20 million to run a national soccer program from youth to futsal to beach to men and women, like, it's still not that much. Well, okay, so the actual numbers were in the financial report for 2021. It was just a little over $18 million for commercial revenues and other fees. So that's obviously a dramatic jump from what we saw in 2018 and 2020. If you just look back through the financial reports, I think it was as low as $3 million. It's now 18 for 2021, right? And that's before assuming qualification for 2022 and then what followed after it. Uh, but if we assume that the $3 million the CSA earns from CSB comes directly from that $18 million in commercial revenue, you're talking at least $15 million in annual revenue that you're missing out on. And that's just for 2021, right? Because obviously how much did they make in 2022? You would imagine more than that. I can't see why we wouldn't get any sort of clarity if the government investigates properly, as I said off the top on the last question. And that is why... I think this is a good thing because we'll finally, hopefully, get some sort of answers. Yeah, and I think this will also cl- maybe clear the air about the nature of the deals yes, as well. Because, which is you know, obviously they're going to have to investigate how is the CSB deal tied to the CSA, how much of an, say, individual entity, because that certainly is a question that's, you know, out there in terms of separating the two entities and how you know how is one the, the the how is the deal signed that's also another question that's going to be looked at uh how binding is, is the deal so in terms of you know this is, uh, you look at the investigation at the very least it's again goes back to that original world it's going to provide clarity uh in terms of uh what what are the nature of these deals and, and what is binding and what can be adjusted and what can be tweaked and 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 at least you know offer what what are the nature of such deals 
And from Dan Clark at Dan Clark 999, how much is Bontis to blame for the continued labor disputes with these players? Is it a case of him inheriting a bad situation or has he made the relationship between the CSA and the players that much worse? Look, he came in right before or during COVID, which didn't help, right? Because that's when funding went completely down the tube. Like, look at the 2020 financial report. It's absolutely shocking how little money they they got in, but understandable, they didn't play games. So there is that. He definitely started by inheriting a bad situation because an already cash-strapped federation was bringing in even less cash when he became the president. With systemic issues we may have from decades. Yes, yes, exactly. Now... If you guys remember from the summertime, Rick West had posted a story and in it, it included that Bontis supposedly signed off on the CSB deal behind the board's back. That's from one source in one story. It's an allegation until proven true or false. But if that is proven true, then it goes from being equal blame for all parties to Well, the crux of the issue is that there's a lack of transparency, which stems from the CSB deal being signed. And if it was Bontis, who it turns out being kind of one of the people most responsible for this becoming a thing, well, then, yeah, he ends up taking more blame. But as for now, it's it's equal parts to go around. And from Nick Spirit at Nick Spirit for why wouldn't a representative of the CSA, the CPL and the men's and women's national teams not just sit down in a room and chat? That's how differences get resolved. You have to have a conversation with all four stakeholders at the same time. You can't do this in a vacuum. And I know that's the idea that a lot of us have had, but players are all around the world. Execs are all around Canada. Like it's not that easy to just sit down in a room, especially when you're only really together from a player and coach's perspective when you're playing imminent games or training. You know, there's this fantastic new software. It's called Zoom. And no matter where you are in the world, you can have a video chat with anybody. It's 100% possible. And it goes back to what I said last week. As is always the case, no one seems to trust each other. No one seems to be finding solutions. Everybody's pointing fingers. Is it instigated by the CSB deal? Perhaps, yeah. So then I guess we have a direct correlation to what has started this all. But For decades, it's been like this. There's just no trust on any side. And I feel like eventually if transparency is discovered, right, we find out where the money's going, whatever the case is. I feel like the vast majority of the players will have enough maturity to be like, okay, this sucks. It is what it is. Let's try to find a common ground and make something out of this as much as we can. Because we thought we were heading that direction when certain players were negotiating their imaging rights, right? Kyle Aaron having that Osmos deal. I think Mark Anthony K had a thing with Kelsey's at one point. Like, things like that, you kind of figured, okay, maybe we're kind of moving in the right direction. The players are trying to maximize their potential earnings. And we're kind of finding common ground here. But clearly that was a short-lived thing. And from Dan Clark... Can the deal with CSB be renegotiated? And if not, what alternatives are there to settle the dispute between the women's national team and the men's national team? I suppose it could. And in a way, we're already kind of seeing it with CSB investing a little more now, obviously after their reputation and everything becomes a massive shitstorm. But from the CSB's perspective, why would you do that? 
unless their reputation goes up in flames and the situation becomes untenable because they have a sweetheart deal. Like, if we look at facts, the majority of the CPL owners, and there are exceptions to this, like former Canadian internationals, for example, but the vast majority of the CPL owners aren't really soccer guys, let alone Canadian soccer guys. So they see this as a business entity, right? And until they see some sort of irreparable hit to the bottom line, I don't think you're going to see them act at least this dramatically. Yeah, it's one where, you know, I guess it depends. It goes back to that that inquiry. Assuming, say, the deal is legally binding, it's one where, yeah, theoretically, they might not have an interest to, to break it apart because from their perspective... It's, you know, it's a great deal. It's one where you, you take advantage. It's your classic buy low. And, you know, now you have a, a, an asset that is going through the roof. So from that perspective, especially if you go pure business perspective, yeah, then they would have no reason to. But I guess on the flip side, there is also, you know, the, the, the soccer realities. There's the realities of, okay, you maybe want to sit down and look and look at things like, okay, how do you get something where you're also helping maximize the growth of the game to, in, until possible and that's also a, a whole different uh, discussion of okay that's where ideas of start that damn women's league or at least be involved in the, the starting of that and, and other things because that's a you know a huge perspective as well from the women's uh, side which has to be you know important to consider in all this when they look at this deal or you, you look at them losing you know a lot of this financial aspect if it was going to a women's league, that's a different story. If they're at least benefiting in some regard, but they're not benefiting from having a women's league, and that all of a sudden becomes a different discussion because at least on the men's side, they're having a CPL, and it's provided them with that chance to co-host a men's World Cup. So, you know, at, at least in terms of negotiations between, you know, CSB and CSA and the women's and the men's team, you know, if we're talking about growing the soccer ecosystem, bringing in aspects such as a league would be one way to really, you know, be, without going into details such as changing the works of the contracts and providing more money, et cetera, that sort of aspect would be huge in, in terms of uh, change. And from Cliff Jameson at Cliff underscore Jameson, does the Pro Soccer Players Association have a collective agreement with the CSA that covers the CanWNT? If not, how can the CSA force them to work and how can the CanWNT say that they're going on strike? If they're not covered by a collective agreement, they should be able to legally walk away from their jobs. And if I'm understanding this correctly, and I'm not a lawyer by any way. Shocker, I thought you were. But I believe that the reason that the women's national team players couldn't actually go through with their extended strike was against Ontario labor law, where the CSA is headquartered and what they operate under. Yeah, I, I believe so. And to be honest as well, the legal teams obviously have a stronger sense of what's happening. So I feel like the women would not have gone through with this unless their legal team had said, hey, guys, let's probably put this on hold for now and then revisit it later. Because clearly, even though they're not happy about the situation, the fact that they did return to training and are going to play the She Believes Cup would indicate that if they didn't, there would have been even bigger problems ahead. Well, they don't have the money to be sued. And that's what their player representatives were telling us yesterday yeah. is that they simply just they can't afford to be sued. They're not on million-dollar contracts around the world. Heck, there's NCAA players making nothing on the team that they can't afford to potentially be sued by the CSA for, for not going to work. And I think they, they probably realize that there is some value in these games as well, and they 
Uh, I know they realize that they're playing quality opponents at the Sheep Leafs Cup. They're preparing themselves for a World Cup, and it might not be in the best circumstances, but at some point they have to sort of avoid legal action as well as uh, avoid potentially putting themselves in a even worse position heading into a World Cup that they could potentially win. Also, if as far as I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you do not need a bargaining agreement to play uh, sports. I mean, we've seen it several often with leagues. Leagues pop up, and then it's like after they're created, where you see, you know, the these CBAs signed between a players' union and an association. So you do not need a collective bargaining impro- uh, agreement to play. And if anything, the lack of collective bargaining agreement just leads to situations like this, where. You know, where you're seeing strikes in, in sport, pro sports, such as, you know, North America, where there's always strikes there, it's because there's very clear legal, you know, uh, entents where if, if a deal's not signed, you can strike. Whereas here, you they could have struck, it struck, but then it's a question of legal issues come up, like being sued. There's a matter of you could just be completely blacklisted by the Federation and no one there's no like protection in a cba because there is no cba saying oh this player deserves protection so they could very much end their national team careers obviously that's not going to happen in that case but you know that just shows the lack of what the lack of a cba could create and also from dan clark how big of a deal is it that alfonso davies has not acknowledged the dispute yeah the davies side in this is fascinating because amongst all these disputes whether it's June's all the way through the summer, when they unionize, et cetera, et cetera. Davies has gotten a five-year deal from BMO, imaging rights for selling shirts, and whatever possibly else he's gotten on top of that. But those are the, the two big things he's gotten while these disputes have rolled on. Now, I do believe that because the players are unionized, they are also entitled to those same imaging rights that Davies has, but he's the big fish. He's the one who publicly came out really through his agency but and and said listen this this can't be happening so they settled with him first because he is the superstar right but if we if we piece together that info and the fact that there were rumblings that he wanted to play the canceled friendlies in june it's a fair question to ask from dan's perspective and any fan's perspective who's wondering this he's donating his share of the world cup windfall anyways though most top players do this to give back and for tax purposes as well, let's be honest. This is definitely not his doing, right? If he is in fact maybe staying silent for whatever reason, I'm sure he's being advised by his agency to maybe, listen, better to not say anything and jeopardize yourself than to say something and possibly jeopardize whatever it is. But certainly if Davies spoke up, he would be untouchable for the Federation. Because as we saw with the Chris Jones article, Everybody vehemently came to Davies' defense. He is beloved in this country. So if he were to speak up, the Federation, I don't think, would be dumb enough to go against Alfonso Davies. I mean, so many of the men's national team players put out that statement that was supporting the women, and Davies on his personal social media stayed silent, and then posts finally getting a jersey for Messi. I don't believe Davies is completely oblivious to the current situation with Canada soccer. Of course not. He has friends that he grew up with on the, the women's national team. I would love to see Alfonso Davies say something, but I have to imagine with the way that his management has managed things in the past, and you mentioned the deals that he's gotten, the the NIL deals that he has with, with Canada Soccer now, I have to mention that he's just being told to stay quiet right now. Yeah, yeah, it's one where it's like you, based on past actions, it's, that's why it's surprising, because he has been one in the past to not 
you know, to, to, to step up and show that sort of support and yeah, maybe it's management, maybe it could even be well at the club level, you know, given the, the Bayern Munich machine. Uh, but in terms of, yeah, it's one where his voice would mean a lot because just because you're talking mainstream awareness, get letting the European men's market know what's going on in Canada soccer. Also, his yeah. German teammates are very outspoken of the World Cup. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, Bayern Munich is a club that stays silent about anything. or You know, the Germans are ones that stay silent if, if they want to stand no. up for what's right. So it's not like there's that culture of staying silent either. Um to be fair, it is a bit different from club level to it is. national it team is. level, yeah. just because it's so complicated where the, the way the system yeah. works in terms of partnerships, etc. But yeah, I mean, it is a big deal that he hasn't acknowledged it, and it is one where it's frustrating in the sense that it is the biggest platform, and you would like to see that um, thrown out there. But then there's also you know reasons, uh, I guess, behind it, obviously. But it's yeah, it is a bit unfortunate, mm-hmm. just given the power... Uh, that, that they could bring to this whole situation. Yeah. The only situation I can think of that you would think to yourself, oh, the players should speak up here. I remember a few years ago when there was political turmoil in Peru and the locals were shocked that the players didn't speak up because they were just about to go to the World Cup or maybe had just come back from the World Cup and they were untouchable, just like Davies is in Canada. And no one said anything, and I think they were mandated not to say anything just because of the sensitivity of the situation, but that is political. Mm. And given just all the political unrest we've seen in Peru over the last five years, it's understandable why they wouldn't want to probably pick sides in that whole thing, because it is very partisan. Whereas I feel like with this, in a labor dispute, you know, it's a little less hostile, let's say, in terms of picking a side. Well, it's just the big surprise, I'd say, is Look, if we're talking about Alfonso Davies himself, if this was an issue like that, look, he can speak up on whatever he wants to. Like, it's, you know, it's one where he doesn't have to speak. He, he's at a point where if, if he doesn't want to, yeah, of course, if he doesn't say anything on certain subjects, you're going to, you know, that doesn't mean he's going to be free of judgment from people. It is just a bit surprising because in this case, we're talking about a statement from the Canadian Men's Players Association. He is a men's player. That's the mm-hmm. big surprise. It's not something as if, Hey, look, if he does, as a player, he has no obligation to speak out against politics, for example. Yeah. If there's an issue in Canada, etc., if there's heck, an issue with this, he doesn't have to speak up on this and say anything. It's just surprising given it's a statement from the men's team, and he is very present and prominent. And some of the players of, did amplify it, too. Like, others tweeted it from their personal accounts. So. Yeah, like Alistair Johnson, of course, I'm uh, you know, I think Stefan Ustakio, Tejan Buchanan, yeah, Mark, Mark Anthony K. Mark Anthony K. of course. Him He's one of the, the union the rep leaders, so yeah. So, yeah, a lot of players and as well others. I mean, Buchanan played in the Champions League today, so that's not a, you know, a player that is unknown. Yeah. yeah. So that's just the big thing, considering his involvement with Canada, like, men's players. Mm-hmm. And from Oz Sweeney, how can the CSA possibly mend it enough in the short term that we don't start losing all the dual and multinational players? I don't think this is as big of an issue for them because you still had Cole Osho come back despite the debacle part one in Vancouver, the prequel, as it were. Jebison is still interested, at least as far as we know. You've gotten tons of players to commit in the past as well, despite Canada soccer's, let's say, disadvantages, right? Will they still commit knowing this is all public now? That's another matter. But as long as you have those youth camps, give players a chance to represent the country as early as possible, I don't think it'll influence things that dramatically. 
Yeah, I think it's one where more of the issues would be felt systematically. Like, yes, this might cause an issue 5, 10, 20 years. We're talking about a lack of youth development. This will mean like a lack of, you know, Canadian maybe developed players in the, the, the European pro stage, et cetera, et cetera. But I think in terms of players, if we're talking players to commit here and now, most of them are looking at sporting reasons. And for sporting reasons, they'd have a lot of good reasons to commit to Canada as men or women, like strong teams, teams that could do well. World Cup bound. Up and coming, young, et cetera. So they'd have a lot of reasons. It, this would more, I feel like a lot of the issues are systematic, and that's where it comes back to something the players yeah. have noted a lot. They, that's the it. women have mentioned a lot. The men mentioned it last year. They just... They're looking to leave the shirt better than it was. So yes. what they're saying is you're trying to make things better so that whoever takes the shirt... Doesn't have to deal with the same issues. Yes, yeah. whereas it's like I don't think the players are going to be stop choosing the shirt because of it. It's just if, if if things are bad, you're going to feel that in 5, 10, 15, 20 yes. years. Cause, Probably more know, so 10 to 20 years. It, it, might, so, yeah. it might have impact grassroots soccer might impact the amount of kids signing up might it, it impact the interest of the sport in the yes, country it might yes. prohibit it from going to where it's one kind of like hockey canada and you know hockey participation yeah, right people don't want to play hockey right now that's going to have an impact in 5 10 15 exactly. 20 years and the same could happen to soccer if this isn't resolved yep. and from ben porter do you honestly think the canada mentee was trying to stay, take a stab at the cpl in their statement you know having thought about it again after we recorded our last podcast I wonder if this was a case of the lawyers concocted a statement, the players copied and pasted, maybe checked it over quickly, and maybe did this more so to bash the owners or take a shot at the owners, not necessarily the league. Because, as we touched on, there are former CPL players on the national team. There are former semi-pro players on the national team. I don't think that they would have the, the gall, frankly, to take a shot directly at the Canadian Premier League. Either way, bad look and a bad move in the end because it doesn't look good because we can sit here and try to, you know, justify their stance. But they said what they said in the statement. People are going to take it whatever way they want to take it. And it's it's not going to come off well in the end because it's just another case of, well, here comes more possible infighting between a domestic league and the national team, which is truly disastrous if that actually ends up becoming a thing. Well, just it is, again, it's like we mentioned, it's really lawyer speak, just because you look at what the players have shown, at least in terms of actions, we've seen players go to games, like Alfonso Davies would go to FC Edmonton games, yeah. Jonathan David has done promo work with Athletic Ottawa, uh, we've seen other instances of, of players going to games, supporting players, they have a lot of friends in those levels, um, if there was some sort of anti-CPL rhetoric, say, from the from Canada, I feel like it would be a little more noticeable. So I think, again, it comes back to one where it's maybe more of a shot at the owners that kind of got put out in the wrong way, yeah. the, a way that they didn't want to say, uh, or, you know, or one where the lawyers maybe took it and the players didn't, like, notice it. Because it's something, like, to be honest, when I first read the statement, I didn't not notice the minor league thing. I just read through and I was like, okay, I didn't. It was when people pointed it out. I'm like, oh, yeah, they did say that. So it's one of those things you easily could have just <laughs> yeah, read over and true. Didn't, like, just didn't think much of it because it was like slipped in the middle of the Towards paragraph. Towards the end, too. It wasn't even like right at the very end. It was like the second to last paragraph. And it was like in the middle of a sentence. Yeah, 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 it's yeah, something yeah. where you can almost just gloss over it and not pick up on it. Because I think the players have shown that. Of course, there are players who've played in the CPL, but also like some guys like Jonathan David, Alfonso Davies, they've never come close to the CPL, but they've you know been involved in yeah. hyping up and... Sure, I'm sure they see the importance. Like I remember speaking to Davies a number of years ago about his start in, in the local Edmonton soccer scene. And, you know, he played in free footy, which is a free to play program. And, you know, he was talking about how important it is to get kids from, you know, all backgrounds, all walks of life 
and, and make the game accessible to them, right? Mm-hmm. And the CPL is enabling players to have another pathway to the pro game. I can't imagine he would be someone who'd be like, no, you know what, screw the CPL. Like, it, <laughs> you, you know, like it, it just doesn't make sense. And while there's a lot of stuff happening around the women's national team, the men's national team, and the whole senior level, and the Canadian Soccer Association, it's also been a busy time for the under-17 boys national team at the CONCACAF U-17 championships. Canada finished second in Group F at the CONCACAF U-17s after losing to the U.S. 1-0 in their final match. They posted wins over Trinidad and Tobago and Barbados in the first two matches, and they'll face the third-place team from Group H in the round of 16 as well. And we'll start off from a question from Old Bill at Bad Wave. I know it's early, but which U17 players are you essentially keeping an eye on? Well, there have been a few. Um, It's unfortunate he was suspended because I would have loved to have seen him play against this US team, but Chimario Meze, he was one of the players who immediately stood out to me from the moment I saw him against Trinidad and Tobago. Just the way that he's, you know, just so proficient in 1v1 defensive duels, the way he's confident carrying the ball forward and is actually quite a menace carrying the ball forward. Like, when he gets going, good luck trying to stop the kid. So it's unfortunate that he missed out on that game just because I would have liked to have seen him against that level of a pressing team with players of that quality, all those factors, right? Uh, But he's someone who stood out in the two games he's played in. Gael de Montigny, his left foot, Alexi and I were talking about this before we watched the the USU 17 game, just majestic, professional already, like at 16 years old. And even just the way he can get forward um, and, and how shifty he is. He's not fast in terms of his like agility, but he's shifty in that he can evade defenders with his footwork. And then just the vision he has gives him such a weapon. Those two balls he played against Trinidad and Tobago, um, amazing. Um, and Jivon Badwal is another one who has really caught my eye in the midfield. He played 225 consecutive minutes in less than a week at altitude, and yet was playing as if it was his first five minutes on the pitch. Like, it was absolutely wild to see just the way that he was getting up and down, covering for his fullback, usually De Montigny, uh, hitting these amazing cross-field passes on a dime. Like, really terrific player. In fact, all the Whitecaps players, youth players, have actually looked really, really good. Um, shout out to Alessandro Biello as well. I, I think that he was missed against the U.S. just for his calmness and ability to control games in that situation. But you can understand why he was rested. He had played a lot of minutes in the first two games. They want to rest him for the knockout stage and whatnot. Um, also nuts that Richard Chukwu is 14 years old. I know he's 15 at the end of the month, but as I tweeted, guys, Low by Flo Rida and T-Pain was the number one song the month he was born. I was blasting that song on my iPod when I was Chukwu's age. I was in grade eight when that song came out, and he is now the age I was at when that song came out, which just makes me feel so old. Yeah, 2008. That's why. That's not that long ago. <laughs> that was 15 years ago now, which, oh my God, where's the time going, guys? You're getting old. Um, <laughs> Thank you for the reminder, but yeah. I, you know, yeah. Richard Chukwu already made that very apparent for me, but yeah, that, thanks, that's, guys. What, that's what I'm here for. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of names as well, I've been really impressed with Biello just because in terms of the role he plays, the number six in the heart of a midfield, it's never an easy role. It's always unforgiving no matter what level. And he just, he reads the game really well. I mean, there's obviously a lot of chatter surrounding all his name, Son of, you know, son of Morrow, et cetera, et cetera. By the way, the spitting image of Morrow Biello. <laughs> like, no doubt who his father is. He's yeah, literally yeah. a younger, taller, slender version of Morrow Biello. Yeah, and he can certainly, you can tell, talking coach's kid, he just, he reads the game. You can tell yeah, that's someone can. who's, 
you know, had the chance to speak with the game a lot with, with his father. And, you know, I've been really impressed with him. It's one, of course, you keep an extra eye on oh, father's kid. Is this, you know, an issue of nepotism? Is, is this someone where he's maybe undeserving of a spot? But hey, at least this tournament, he is, uh, he's done a job in the heart of midfield. And just the, the way he reads the game, I think, will serve him well uh, long term if he's going to be playing midfield because it's such a cerebral. A position, yeah. you know. Otherwise, you you look up front. Someone like Eric Pop, obviously recent, tra- you know, transfer from League One Ontario uh, to Germany. He just he has a bit of, you know, je ne sais quoi, a bit of explosiveness in the final third. I feel bad for a lot of the strikers because again, we're looking at this U seventeen team. It's one where we do have to acknowledge it's been a bit of a rehash of what we've seen a lot at the youth level over the last few years. That's why we really haven't mentioned it, since you could go to any yeah. podcast talking U20, youth 23s, you know, men's or women's. It's yeah. one where there's a lot of the same systematic issues. Good defensive base, good individual defenders. You got one or two decent orchestrators in the midfield, a bunch of number eights who aren't necessarily the best at connecting defense to attack, and then forwards who are on an island which is kind of a bit different to what we saw like even 10 years ago when, okay, structurally, those teams were not great, but you still had the likes of Marco Bustos, Handsome Boakai at youth levels who were so very clearly talented attacking players who could drive attacks on their own, whereas you're not really seeing that now with current youth national teams. Well, it's one where it's like a chicken-the-egg situation. The way they're being coached isn't exactly encouraging of creativity or, you know, expansive risk-taking or movement in the final third, which when you look at some of these players, like the flashes I've seen from Pop again, he seems like someone who can really be unlocked in the final third. Ibrahim Higazi, we talked about him last week, the Rao Valley Kennel man. In the subs appearances, he's half off the bench, and he also had a start. Again, he has that just, that X factor about him. There's a few in the midfield. Antoine Ndiaye as well has been someone who's, you know, he's really had some flashes. Ruben Dessau a lot of these players, but it's it's one where it comes back to those systematic issues where a lack of youth camps is, you know, showed a bit of tactical. It hasn't created tactical familiarity that you'd want because, you know, you look at teams that have youth camps every few months, you're always working on the same system, and then it becomes a bit of a, an issue where because of a lack of youth camps, you're simplifying the tactics, and then because you're simplifying the tactics, you're not necessarily, you're forced uh, to, to play a little more simple way but because you had that you know it's one of those where it's the, each situation is a cause of the other and it's unfortunate because yeah you look at some of these players there's some some really exciting players and they have shown it in moments so it's one where heading into this knockout stages there's no doubt that talent wise especially the way the bracket set up for them well by the time many of you are listening you'll likely know who mm-hmm. they'll be playing that round of 60 matchup they should hard to say they should win but it's a very winnable matchup yes. And if all goes to as planned, so the first place team uh, makes it to the quarters, they play Costa Rica. That's a team they drew and beat last yeah. in, in one in of the, December. in their preparatory camps. That's a game they should win because they have to get to it's the... It's winnable. Let's just well, say yeah, it's, it's a game that... It's not, as they say in Spanish. It's not Mexico. It's not U.S. where you're sitting and just praying. This is a game where they could exactly. go out and get a result. Uh, but it's going to be one that just, again, it feels like we're going to have to hope for some strong defense and then some individual brilliance and... It's just unfortunate at the youth level that you look at the talent of these players. You can just only imagine what you can do if they were in a system that was more suited. Uh, you know, they've had that chance to work together. So you, you see these flashes, like, oh, okay, some of these kids can really play. Yeah, of course. So that's, and that's why it's also, at times, really difficult to judge these players in youth tournaments where it's really extraordinary circumstances. You're playing every other day. It's You're playing in altitude in this case because you're about 
a mile above sea level in Antigua, Guatemala. So that's another factor. And you're playing in a system that may not necessarily be suited to your strengths either. So just something worth noting when we do analyze these players. As impressive as they have been, but like this was more so a case of, hey, they stood out. It'd be interesting to watch their development over the next couple of years because they've stood out in this setting already. What can they do in the next couple of years? And from Star at Hemalurgy, should the CPL be the main pathway into MLS first team minutes for the MLS U17s? I think if you're a CF Montreal youngster, you're probably going to go that path anyway, at least if history is any sort of indication. Vancouver seems to be focused on doing the same, although it's still very early to judge since Montreal's probably a couple years ahead of them in terms of replicating that cycle. But we've already seen the likes of Christian Campagna go to CPL, right? So it's kind of Matteo Campagna as well. So we've already seen certain examples, and there there have been many ex-Whitecaps Academy guys who've gone to the CPL. I know that wasn't the plan, but at least there's a bit of a pipeline there already. For TFC's kids, they'll play TFC too, as they always get the opportunity to. They'll probably get you 20 caps in the future if everything goes according to plan. But it's all it always comes back to will they feature for the first team. They did better giving those kids opportunities last year, as we remember. But they've sold one now to Rosenberg and Jaden Nelson. That's worked out for them, right? Because I think in MLS, the main objective of academies is to develop these players, give them opportunities in the first team, sell them for a profit. So in Nelson, you've done that. Congratulations. You can potentially do that soon with uh, Jaquiel Marshall-Ruddy. The question is, are they going to give those kids the best possible chance to, to succeed? You see what they do at Montreal, and it's clear. Become accustomed to a pro environment in the CPL, season a little bit, and then earn your chance at Montreal in a settled system where you kind of fill a role already, right? Because you're going to have something tailor-made for you. Obviously, Nancy leaving and Losada come in changes things a little bit, but they've kept the same system, relatively speaking. Um, whereas with TFC, it was so difficult with Bradley coming in, changing systems at times. The mid-season additions they had that changed the entire complexion of the team, quite frankly. Plus, they have huge expectations to spend and win, right? It becomes harder for those younger players to establish themselves. So credit to Jaden Nelson and to Bob Bradley for staying patient, helping Nelson in his development, getting to where he is, and reaching another level. Hopefully with another year in charge and a fully fit season for Marshall Ruddy, he can follow that path and maybe others can follow that path, but it's one where I'm reserving judgment. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it depends on each player. I mean, if a player is ready to play an MLS at 16, good, like... (laughs) There's always going to be an Alfonso Davies. There's going to be uh, exceptions. I mean, for most MLS teams, the priority is going to funnel them through the second team because each team has a second team of some sorts. Montreal, of course, with their U23 team. You look at TFC with their TFC2, Whitecaps with WFC2. Um, But, yeah, it would be nice to see MLS teams continue to look at the CPL as an alternative because there's a chance where, yeah, if you have a 16-year-old CB who's ready for your TFC2 team, Sure, you'd like to start, but if they're your CB position's already maybe a bit loaded with, you know, a couple 19, 20-year-olds, it might be worth just throwing him in a pro environment on, on a loan if a team's willing to, to take him. And, of course, mm-hmm. he has to be ready for CPL because yes. some CPL teams won't take players that aren't ready because they, yep. of course, have to go win and yep. et cetera. But uh, it's something where if you're looking at, a C, you know, MLS teams, it is a pathway that, that could be considered. And if anything, the more interesting thing I'm going to, want to see over the next few years is, is the CPL really continues to embed more and more young 
players, how many of them do we see represent uh, Canada at the U20, U17, mm. U23 level? Yeah. Because that's going to be fascinating. To, Especially to, with some clubs starting academies now. Exactly. Because like now we're still at a generation where, yeah, most of these kids at the age where they are now, when they started at, I guess if they're 15, 16, they start around 10, 11, 12. No CPL yet. But now the next generation of kids, mm. they'll have grown up playing, you know, having that choice of CPL and being in academies. And then I'm curious of seeing how, what the split of kids playing in CPL. And say, hey, as we saw at the U20 level, kids who played pro minutes, CPL versus kids in the academies, it makes a difference. Look at the wall right at the U20s. He was literally a man amongst boys. Yeah. And from old Bill at Bad Wave, given how good Victor Fung has looked, are you concerned that the U.S. might swoop in given how he only spent a few months in Canada and has been in the U.S. since he was around six years old? So what you're saying is another Fikao Tomori situation. <laughs> uh, no, look, there's always a chance, right? The U.S. do have a lot of good center back prospects and young center backs in Europe already. So I think they're pretty well set for the next little while in that regard. So that's advantage Canada. Plus, you brought him in early to have this experience. So again, another point in your favor. But Fung is 15. And I'm sure he's weighing all of his options for now. The fact he did accept a call-up is positive. Now it's just a case of we wait and see how he develops and whether he still feels the same way because he is going to have many, many options. Yeah, and it's like, again, look, the, the he's 15 part is huge because that's someone who have to remember by the time, again, this is just going to feel wild to, to throw at stuff like that. By the time the 2026 World Cup is going to come around, he'll be about to turn 19. <laughs> this is someone who, like, we're talking 2030, he'll be 23. Like, even then, that's for center back. That's that's, that's young. Like, this is someone we're talking, like, Guys, 20. I'm so old. Oh, gosh. <laughs> 2030, 2034, 2038. There's a lot of time. It really, it's going to depend because for all we know, in 2030, Canada's going to have an exceptional center back depth and he's going to have, it's going to be tough for him to crack. Maybe he goes to Venezuela, maybe he goes to U.S., maybe he goes to Hong Kong. Or it's one of those where in four to eight years, Canada's still starving, you know, for young center back depth and they want him. It's one where it's just so hard to project, especially give it's the center backs. Realistically, if you're talking 15, if I'm giving an estimate, like what, 22, 23 is being early in terms of projecting when he'd, yes. he'd have hopefully by then maybe a year or two, three years of pro under his belt. Yeah. Like that's again, if we're talking him at 22, 23, that's five, six, seven years down the road. It's one where... That decision is going to come in for so long. It's just so long, hard to project. Like, yeah. so much can change. Are you saying that, like, a 43-year-old Stephen Vittoria isn't going to be holding things down for the Canavan team? Man, before? at this point, he might honestly yeah. have to. Just fucking wheel him out there. Yeah. And just, you know, Stephen, can you give us 15 minutes? Just sweep up any header you can see. Just take penalties. Because I actually played in a men's league with a former Algeria international centre-back who played against Portugal, played against Ronaldo and whatnot. And like, he's obviously not the fastest anymore. He's in his mid forties now, but the, he can still read the game super well. He's still super calm under pressure. Like Stephen Vittoria could do a job of that against, I don't know, Dominica for 20 minutes, you know, just sweep up everything he sees, pass it to one of the faster guys and all right, off you go. Well, I mean, if, if we're in a hypothetical scenario where Carlo Ancelotti or... Uh, Marcelo Bielsa are, you oh, know, yes. are, are coaching Canada versus Dominica in 2032 and uh, <laughs> they're looking at a 24, 25 year old Victor Fung or whatever he'd be by then uh, let's just hope that uh, they, they trust him with uh, those 20 yes. minutes instead of Stephen Can Victoria. you imagine Marcelo Bielsa and his like 97 page dossier on Dominica's set pieces like I, I can't wait for that That's honestly he would he would do that 
The man is a loco for a reason. And we'll get into our Canucks Abroad mailbag and roundup. A reminder that Northern Football Podcast is proudly partnered with Canucks Abroad. Find the full Canadian player pool and schedules for Canadians in action at canucks-abroad.ca. Alfonso Davies was a second-half substitute for Bayern Munich in Saturday's win over Bochum in Bayern's first-leg victory over PSG in the Champions League round of 16 on Tuesday. He provided the winning assist off a superb cross. And from Felipe Vallejo at Felipe V underscore FC, Cancelo has now started four games in a row for Bayern, and Davies has had a few games off the bench. Is this something that we should be worried about for Davies for the rest of this season? Not for now, because Davies has, to his credit, looked much better in his last two appearances. Since Bayern switched to a back three, what seems to be permanently, uh, he looked excellent off the bench against Mainz as a left wing back. And that's always been his best role, being able to get forward and, and utilize his qualities in the final third. And perhaps the longer layoff and maybe not fully recovering from his hamstring injury pre-World Cup maybe contributed to that downturn in form to start the new year. Because, guys, I mean, yes, we know that Davies obviously recovered from the hamstring injury and played at the World Cup. I can't imagine he was entirely 100% fit. Coming in cold, coming off a hamstring injury, those are always very tricky to recover from. I'm sure it was still affecting him at the World Cup. And who knows, maybe it got worse and we just never heard about it. And maybe that was affecting him to start 2023. This is all speculation, of course. But um, we also know Cancelo is not a left back because Bayern tried him out there. And they're like, nope, that's not going to happen. So we'll put him to right back where he belongs. Um, So that's no longer an issue. But this is also a good thing because Davies hasn't had much adversity in terms of fighting for minutes since he locked down a permanent place in the team in the 2019-20 season. Uh, Competition is always a good thing because it does spur on players, as we've seen with Davies. He's actually been pretty decent the last couple of games now, better than he had been to start the year. And that'll help him for Canada too because sometimes when players are young and they explode to superstardom early, they get a little set in their ways, right? And then adversity hits and boom, they never take anything for granted again. I'm not saying Davies fits that mold, but I'm sure it'll spur him on further for club and country to to just, you know, never take anything for granted. Yeah, I mean, this Davies one's interesting because it's interesting you brought that up, Peter, in terms of him not maybe not being 100%. I've felt I've looked at him. He hasn't looked 100%. And that's not to say mm-hmm. he's, obviously, he's fit enough to be playing, but there's just, like, when I was watching against PSG, for example, there was many a time where... Last year, Alfonso Davies, or two, three years ago, he would have burst into space and really, you know, made these sorts of runs that we're accustomed to seeing from Alfonso Davies. And there's a bit times where he looked timid. So maybe it's like he's, it just felt like watching him. I had this thought like yesterday randomly. So like you bring it up, it was like, he looks like 95%. Like he looked like he's maybe healthy enough to try a run like that. But maybe because of the hamstring injuries, he doesn't want to push it. Maybe there's a bit of you know, he's scared of, of getting injured, etc. He was also playing a lot leading up to that injury, too, which yeah. certainly didn't help. Much like Stefan Ashtakio, and then we saw what happened to him. So. Yeah, it's one where I do think he, he's not... It just feels like he's not fully 100%, which is something that, you know, of course, is his building up to. And then there's also... Yeah, I mean, he, he, this is adversity can only be good for him because he's improved a lot. Like, I think off the World Cup break... We saw the first three games. He wasn't his full self. He struggled a bit. He, you know, he fell to the bench while Cancelo comes in. And 
it's like you mentioned, it's been good for him. He's been, he's, you know, improving his lot. And you know what? I like this because I think at a certain point, his legs will be a hundred percent again. He's, he's still 22 and you know, that he shows that pace. The pace is there. Yeah. He showed it against oh, yeah. PSG. It's just, there's a few it's moments. It's just not a hundred percent. Because right? the thing is with Davies, what I'll be worth noting, when I think of Davies, I think of his, that game against Dortmund where he really burst onto the yeah. scene. 2019, Jaden Sancho. Oh, and yeah. Davies was just like a sp- he was everywhere. Like he was running and was running. Was that not the game when Thomas Muller dubbed him the Roadrunner? Yes. I think that was the exact game. Like, so yeah, there you go. That's what we're used to seeing from Alfonso Davies. He's running everywhere. And you can tell right now he's not quite at that level yet. But that's also not a bad thing. Because what I've noticed as well the last few games, it's forcing him to be a little more intricate with his passing. He's intricate with his movements. Yes. And, and improving, yeah. just working in that half space a little more. Just you know, reading the game a bit differently because uh-huh. you're not thinking about going full tilt mm. in your head. You can tell he's thinking, okay, I need to manage myself yeah. a little more. So I do think that's interesting because it's helped that he's adjusted to that style of game. You see that assist he had uh, against Kingsley Coleman. That's not an assist we've seen often from Alfonso Davies. He received the ball in space, slowed things down, focused on the quality of his cross, picked out Kingsley Coleman. What are we used to seeing from Alfonso Davies? It's run into space, beat a guy, whip in a hard ball in towards the near far post and have a, you know, a forward finish Think, think of like that assist he had to Robert Lewandowski in 2020 uh, against Chelsea, where he just burst down the line, made a quick assist. I did, you know, it's worth noting that uh, the, the assist he had versus PSG was one where he slowed things down. He played a different style of, of pass, and uh, it, it, he is adapting his game. And I think in a few weeks' time, that those legs will will come back to him uh, fully, and you you can tell that he'll he'll be going back to to full tilt. But at the very meanwhile. It is interesting to see how he's evolved his game and then uh, as well as is, is, is how um, he's responding to adversity because he's also responded well. Like he's not like he's coming off the bench and looking sluggish or frustrated with himself. His head's down, he's working, and he's having these good appearances. Jonathan David was back among the goals with a brace for Lille against Strasbourg on Sunday. He's on 16 goals in all competitions this season. E.K. Ubo was an unused substitute for Troyes. They lost 4-0 to Rems on Sunday as well. Kyle Lahren was a second-half substitute for Real Valladolid, but failed to score this time in a nil-nil draw with Osasuna on Sunday. Tejon Buchanan got 89 minutes in Club Bruges' 1-1 draw with Union Saint-Gilois. He also started in their 2-0 loss to Benfica in the first leg of their Champions League round of 16 matchup at home. Thoughts on his performance? Well, first of all, uh, Parker Ball strikes again. Still just the one win in his first eight games as Club Bruges manager and five draws. Uh, but that was his second defeat, and a crucial one at that, because that probably seals Benfica's spot in the quarterfinals, given how poorly Club Bruges played, especially in attack. Um, Buchanan was fine. Like, I mean, he had the odd flash. He had one decent chance at goal, which expected goals, I think, gave him like 0.36 on that chance, which is very high, because that was quite a tight angle. Um, so... Look, it's very much a case, at least since Scott Parker has gone there, where Buchanan shows flashes, but then can't finish off the chances. Um, and I mean, I guess to his defense, he only has one or two a game, but man, Parker ball, the way it's going, you're only going to get one or two chances a game. You have to convert them. And then maybe, you know, we might start looking at his form a little differently. But right now, I think he's being held back a little bit by the tactical deployment because he was very much, as he has been in, in a few games under Scott Parker, this like wingback winger tweener where off the ball he'd be a wingback, but then as soon as they got on possession, he pushed forward as part of a front three and he was an out-and-out winger. But is that really the best way to use him? Probably not. Yeah, Parker Ball's just been so weird to watch because 
it, it feels so like stop starty. Like I don't know, yes. there's something about it. There's not like they want to hold possession, but then they turn on the ball over oh, yeah. a lot. Like, they pass around in their defensive third very quickly, try to break a press, and then boom, long ball. And then if the long ball doesn't work, they recycle possession again and do the whole thing over. Like the, the, there's many wow. things that are like weird about it. Like I can't tell what their style. Like do they want to counter and sit deep? Do they want to hold possession? Who knows? There's a bit of a mix. There's not a clear identity. There's a lot of sloppy turnovers. Like, that goal that they gave up to David Neres just cannot happen at no. the Champions League level. That's one where you're not even... You're not getting away with that in the Belgian League, let alone the, the, the Champions League. So it's just so strange to see them make that sort of mistake. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just something that seemed off about Parker Ball ever since he's come in. Because you look at Bruges last year, the way they, they were playing, they were so ruthless, so mm-hmm. dominant. They would control the ball... They would just know what they do with with mm-hmm. the ball. They'd have efficiency even in they the first incisive. even the first yeah. half of the year. You look what Carl Hopkins was able to do in the Champions League. Their stunning run, four wins yeah. and two losses. I think yeah. it was like they were just there was an efficiency about their play. And right now with, with with Scott Parker, it feels like a mix of there's a lack of urgency and then there's a sloppiness about mm-hmm. them. Um, there's just a lack of consistency. It's really individualistic too, which I remarked. Like it's a lot of. Their best chances come off of Tejom Buchanan having to dribble two guys. It's off of Noah Lang having to drip through the higher entire what team. He is. It's trying to. It's Hans Vonneken, who's someone who in the first half of the season was playing great one-two touch football, having to force to take three, four, five touches because there was no movement around him. Like the amount of times I looked up and counted one or two blue and black shirts going against a wave of four or five red shirts. Yeah. Like there's no. There's yeah something about Scott Park. I just. I'm seeing what, from what I've seen, I can't imagine him making it beyond the end of the year if he even makes it to the end of the year because it's one where they're about to bow the Champions League. They're not. It's not like they're having stunning form nope. in the league they either. Fall way behind. Like it's one where it's just like again because these issues. If it happens at the Champions League level, sure, it's a higher level of competition. But it's in the league as well. It's happening in the league against yeah. far inferior opposition, and this is a Benfica team. It's a very good Benfica team. Slept on. Oh, you of look course, at yeah. like. They have great depth as well, like mm-hmm. the fact that they have guys like Neres coming off the bench. They sold Enzo Fernandez. Yeah. And have no issues. But this is a team where if you were your pot one draw, like this you could be playing Bayern right now. Like yeah. you could be one where you're just getting annihilated by Bayern. It's like <laughs> if if anything, they got blessed with a great they draw did. and they're not even able to at least make something of it. Like they got blown out handily. Yeah, it should have been more than two. Yeah, it should have been three, four nil, and that's just shocking because you looked how good Bruges was in a tough group in the first mm-hmm. half of the year. It's like night and day. Stefanos Daki returned from his knee injury in Porto's win over Sporting. He got 12 minutes off the bench. Steven Vittoria went the full 90 and helped Chavez earn a clean sheet in a nil-nil draw with Vizela on Friday. In the EFL, Ishmael Kone got the start and went 79 minutes for Watford as they drew 1-1 with Blackburn on Saturday. He had 76 minutes in a 1-1 draw with championship leaders Burnley on Tuesday. How do you look at his return to the 11? Well, against Blackburn, he was much better than in his last appearance. But Watford were more on the front foot in that game, playing vertically, quickly, which is a setting Kone thrives in. It's really suited to his strengths. He continues to improve in terms of his reading of the game, his anticipation defensively, the composure on the ball, reacting quicker, making quicker decisions, all of which you knew were going to come good with more appearances in a very physical but also fast league, fast-paced league like the championship. The Burnley game was a bit more of a struggle, but that was the case for Watford in general. (laughs) Like, Burnley's rest defense and press were just so damn good, and it was troubling 
the Watford midfield throughout and including their defense trying to build up from the back. They just couldn't surpass them whatsoever. Um, but that is an area where Kone just couldn't maneuver his way through trouble with regularity nor find the gaps in space because Burnley was just shutting it all off. So Kone was just kind of left on the ball wondering, all right, what are my options here? None? Okay, I might either pass this aimlessly or lose possession because I have no other choice. I have no options in front of me. Uh, but if there was one big lesson from that Burnley game specifically, it's that he's learning why defensive discipline is so important for a midfielder because if you don't read your pressing trigger in time, press too early or too late, good teams will burn you when you vacate that space in behind you or in front of you, whatever the case is. And he was very good and he has been quite good in his last few games defensively. He's really improving in that area which is massive if he wants to lock down a starting place for Canada in the 2026 cycle. And I think he's well on his way to doing that. He did look pretty good in this game defensively despite the on-the-ball struggles. But if you're looking at this from a long-term perspective, you'd rather him continue developing defensively and maybe have the odd game where he isn't the best on the ball because you know that's always going to be there. Yeah, I mean, in terms of Watford as well in this Burnley game, they funneled a lot down the sides. I mean, that's something we typically see. To be fair, they are blessed with someone like an Ismail Asar who should be playing at a higher level uh, than he is now. And you can see like when he can get on the ball, he can be uh, dominant. And they really do lean on the wings. And mm-hmm. you see that as well. Like Joao Pedro had a really good game at left wing in this game. And they were really funneling the ball. Uh, so it's one for, for Kona adding on the ball. What he's learning at the moment is just finding space and mm-hmm. finding a way to get on the ball and then uh, move it quick. He can. He's done well at moving it quick. It's yep. just more finding the space. Mm-hmm. Uh, which something like, yeah, he, he only had like 15 passes, but he completed like 13 of them, if I'm not mistaken, or a pretty high number. Like Yeah, it was a low number of passes. Yeah, I think it was like a 13 for 17, I yeah, want to say. 13, something like 15, that. I think I remember seeing or something like that. So that's just finding that space, especially against a team like Burnley that just eats the ball. Uh, but yeah, the defensive signs are, are encouraging, and I think it's just good to, to see him continue to grow and uh, find some more consistency because it's early days. I mean, Watford as well, It's it's been a bit of a weird patch for, for them uh, yes. in terms of a couple it's drops. It's been a weird patch for a lot of those you know promotion-pushing teams, to be fair, outside of the top two. It seems. Yeah, so... It's again just lessons uh, lessons learned for East Malconi, but he's he's projecting well because yeah, considering he's what we're here February fifteenth, he's been at the club for a month? six weeks. Yeah. Like <laughs> most of us didn't even think he'd be playing off the bat. So this, no. these are the sorts of lessons we're happy to see him learn because we could very and well be in a Richie Larea situation yeah. where we're calling him just to play. <laughs> <laughs> Junior Hoylet played seventy eight minutes for Reading in a one nil loss to Sunderland on Saturday. He came off at halftime in Tuesday's victory over Rotherham. Over in Scotland, Alistair Johnston went the full 90 for Celtic in their Scottish Cup victory over St. Mirren. He'll face Hearts in the quarterfinals. The Turkish season has been postponed following the earthquake in Turkey and Syria that devastated both countries and killed thousands. However, Sam Adekubi has reportedly sealed a short-term loan to Turkish Super League leaders Galatasaray from Hacispor. Liam Miller and Basil faced Transespor in the Europa Conference League this Thursday. Theo Corbinu got 22 minutes for Armenia Bielefeld in a 1-0 loss to Hansa Rostock on Friday. How has he fared in Germany so far? Well, he produced a few sublime crosses in both games, but the finishes just weren't there. Still seeing some of the usual stuff that we've seen in his last couple of loan spells. A bit too individualistic at times. Could play off teammates instead of dribbling into trouble, but... It's been two games, 75 minutes in total, if we're just counting the minutes, so I'll reserve judgment fully on that. But 
you can see his dynamism and pace will really suit the German game. He's getting far more separation in Germany than he was either in League One or in the championship. So I think if he starts to gain more chemistry with teammates, learns their tendencies, and if, honestly, there's a better finish on the end of some of these crosses, I think we're going to have a much better outlook for Corbinu. But the case is, as it has been for the last couple of years, can he stay fit? And then also, can he stay in the team? Because he has had problems with both. Lucas Cavallini made his debut for Club Tijuana as he got around 40 minutes off the bench in their 1-0 win over Atletico San Luis. He also came off the bench for a half hour against Chivas on Wednesday. And of course, no Nathan Ingham or Ollie Bassett for Atletico San Luis. They're back in Canada. But Dominic Zator finished a full 90 for Corona Kielce in a 1-1 draw with Slask. Marcus Guidinho had 20 minutes off the bench. Didi and Abzi was an unused sub in Pau's 1-1 draw with Grenoble on Saturday, but was named but was named Pau's Player of the Month. Justin Smith was in QRM's matchday squad once again, although he was an unused substitute. Damiano Petile has been loaned from Venezia to finish top flight side KTP until the end of 2023. Switching over to the women's side, Amadine Pierre-Louis finished the 94 Rodet and Yasmin Hall had 38 minutes in Rodet's win over Soyo. Julia Grasso played 83 minutes in a 3-0 Juventus win over Fiorentina on Saturday. She added an assist to her league-leading tally of 7 in the result. Shalina Zadorsky finished the 90 for Tottenham in a 2-1 defeat to Manchester United, who were without Adriana Leon, who still struggles to get playing time with Manchester United. Yep. In the UEFA Women's Champions League, Sabrina D'Angelo and Arsenal drew Bayern Munich in the round of 16. Ashley Lawrence and PSG have Wolfsburg. Vanessa Gilles and Leon are taking on Kadisha Buchanan and Jesse Fleming's Chelsea. So certainly some exciting ties to come up in the UEFA Women's Champions League. But a lot of the Canadian women's Euro players now with the women's national team in Orlando getting set for the She Believes Cup as they get set to play under protest. Don't forget to follow Canucks Abroad on Twitter at Canucks underscore abroad and on Instagram at Canucks Abroad for frequent updates on Canadian players worldwide and join the Canucks Soccer Chat on Discord and converse with like-minded Canadian soccer fans at soccerchat.ca. And from Dan Clark at DanClark999, any early predictions for the Nations League roster for the March window? I honestly don't think we see too many surprises. Maybe one or two, depending on current form, injuries, that sort of thing. Like Alistair Johnson suspended for the Curacao game, because remember he got sent off against Honduras in June. So I wonder if we see one change there at right back, although that could mean Brogiar or maybe Zator, but I'm skeptical. They might just roll with Lorea and Johnston for both of those games because I feel like that's what they've done in the past when one of them was on a yellow card warning and then eventually got suspended. Depending on the fitness and form of Sam Atakubi and Atipa Hutchinson, because the Turkish Super League season is obviously postponed, that might open the door for Raheem Edwards, a Victor Loturi, someone like that. But otherwise, I don't think we're going to see many surprises. Funny you mentioned Raheem Edwards because he also got a red card in the Honduras game on the bench, so he will be. Oh, suspended. that's right! Yes, <laughs> he will be. There suspended. you go. I was waiting to, to put that in, but uh, yeah. So he, Raheem Edwards also will be suspended. I think it's just looking at what's going on right now. I can't imagine too many surprises. A lot of like say the older players who we could see phased out, like Steven Vittori is in pretty darn good form, so I think he'll be around. For example, yeah. so. Uh, like, don't know if he'll be starting, but yeah, you look at Scott Kennedy maybe struggling for minutes with his red card. We could very well see Victorian Miller at CB's. Um, you, you look, I mean, Sam Adekugbe, if he's training with Galatasaray, 
and playing with Galatasaray, he'll certainly, you know, be back, of course, given, you know, his circumstances, it's more non-footballing purposes yes, that might, uh, you know, hold them back in, in that regard. Yeah, I, I think it, where the big surprises are going to come, it's who starts the MLS season well. So yeah. There's about a th- three to four game window before, because the, the window comes late in March and the MLS season starts like mid to late February, you could say the 25th. Sort of like the third week of February, yeah. So it's about four games before, and as we saw last year, Ismail Kone had a bright start to, to life in MLS. He was in the March camp, and especially since this is Nations League. So I'm looking at, okay, like if... Unless we see at Montreal, like, Sean Ray and Nathan Saliba light the world alight, maybe they get a call to, to just yeah. experience... It'll be someone like that. Like, you know, maybe ditto out, you know, Whitecaps, maybe if Thomas Assault wins the, the net over, like, a Yohi Takaoka, uh, he, and they have a great start, maybe he gets a bone thrown to him as a third goalkeeping option with Max Crepo obviously still... Uh, returning from yeah. injury, like or somehow Karifa Yao starts the season with the Whitecaps and just kills it in the first three. Yeah, games. or like yeah. even like you look at other players, which like I don't M- think happens. But anyway, Moise Bambito has been getting regular minutes with yeah, Colorado. He yeah, started yeah. their last preseason game, as did Ralph Priest. So maybe one of those two, Luca yeah. Petrasso has yeah. been starting for Orlando. I think that's what's happening. He'd be the left back replacement. There if we you need go. Him. For talking about left backs, I just think you look at a lot of the options in the squad. Um, most of the players that we think about maybe being fit phase out the cycle. Uh, I don't know. They, they, they haven't, you know, they've been playing well at the club level and there hasn't been really any new faces to, to note that have stepped up and, and really that aren't already in the fold, let's yes, say. Like, yeah, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's either that or dual nationals, but uh, you know, yeah. that's always the same song and dance. Like yeah. what's up with Daniel Jebison? What's mm. up with cetera? So it's one where I see a relatively straightforward squad, probably 95% as expected, but Hey, John Urban always does love a surprise, especially yes, Nations League. Yes, he does. That's true. Luca Coliosho. Hello. And as well, Canada has officially qualified for the World Cup. It was a lot shorter of a qualification process this time. <laughs> they just had to be awarded the hosting rights. And I guess that's where the CPL being a part of the Canadian soccer picture does prove yeah. critical as Canada, the U.S. and Mexico have officially got their spots in the 2026 World Cup. And that's certainly going to be an exciting one, seeing as Canada qualifies for back-to-back men's World Cups for the first time ever. Might have yeah. been, you don't necessarily get the exciting day at BMO Field with your feet freezing, but hey, they're in the World Cup. That's that's better than they've done a lot of times. Uh, and on March 28th, Canada will host Honduras in the CONCACAF Nations League. That match official to happen at Toronto's BMO Field. And from El Duderino, something other than the drama off the pitch. Is there a player you were disappointed didn't move clubs in January? Ike Ubo comes to mind just based off the fact that other strikers are in moves and are settled in new clubs. So he's at a bit of a disadvantage there. But Liam Fraser's another. I mentioned it just before the January window closed. Because where he's playing at Dines in the Belgian second division and pretty much in the doldrums of the Belgian second division at this point. Not even playing at this no, point either. And may not help his national team stock for 26 if other midfielders progress. And he's not even playing. He's making the yeah. bench each week. So uh, that's not been ideal. I mean, yeah, other than Ugbo Fraser, I'd throw, I was going to throw Adekubi, but obviously now he's got to move again, obviously, on unfortunate circumstances, but, um, you know, it is good that he gets this opportunity. Um, Other one, I'd say Chloe Lacasse, just because I feel like, again, I just feel like it's... She's ready for a bigger jump. Like, she's doing great at Benfica, and obviously they want to keep her, and well, you know, she is kind of a star pearl of the project they have there, but it is one where you'd like to see her make a jump up, especially about to be 30. You'd like to see her test uh, herself in, in like, an England 
or France. Yeah, because other than that, a lot of the moves, like Buchanan, it's a summer thing. Yeah. Jonathan David, it's it for what Lil want, it's a summer thing. Yes. And what's great, flying under the radar about Jonathan David, it's February, mid-February, and he hasn't had a slump. Like no. a, a major slump. And that's huge. That's huge for clubs looking at him because he already has... He's one away from his best ever league season, yep. which is 15, and he's yep. at 14. And it's February. And it's February, so we'll knock on wood. Hopefully he, of course, yep. beats that. But what's worth noting, the first year when he had 13, there was obviously the half-season slump where he scored two. There's been half-season slumps in both campaigns he's had before this one. So this is the, the, best, now. the best season he's had in terms of going X amount of games without... Uh, a slump so it's on that this is it's again maybe it's bittersweet to not see him move considering there's not much 100%. for him to fight for at Lille other than a Champions League spot but I think it's one where he's improving his stock quietly mm-hmm. by doing uh just I- I- improving his numbers so yeah other than that most of the players who, who needed uh moves got their moves and the, the only other one I throw out there is Kamal Miller just because yeah. I think it's one where you you see based on the roles that guys have been at, had at the World Cup they already got the moves. Johnson got his move. You Kone. Know, Kone got his move. You know, guys like Buchanan and David are going to get their moves. But I just see a guy like Kamal Miller. It feels like he's someone that also could have had some sort of jump. It didn't have to be a big jump, but maybe to like a, a Belgium-style league. But from nice. the sound of it, because he was on that podcast a few weeks ago, it sounds like a lot of the clubs who were interested in him overseas were more looking at a summer move rather mm-hmm. than a January move. So there's another So, so hopefully, I mean, yeah. again, it's one hopefully we just see it. Just... And he's still young for a center, but oh, for a no, defender and, in general. He's, so he's, he's going to be 29 by the 26th World which Cup. Which is also crazy. It's but still, yes, it's still time. Right in his prime. And moving on to some domestic stuff, Jaden Nelson was officially sold to Rosenberg in Norway from TFC. CF Montreal officially signed 20-year-old Can MNT eligible striker Jules Anthony Vilsaint and welcomed Chinonso 04 following his loan to Zulta Vorigam. MLSsoccers.com Tom Bogert says the Vancouver Whitecaps have all but sealed two signings, forward Sergio Cordova from Real Salt Lake and goalkeeper Yohei Takaoka from the Japanese J-League. And from Matt12.Mark at Matt12Mark1, who has impressed the most at camp amongst Montreal's youngsters? How has Ilyash Iliadis looked at camp? What can you guys tell about his seasons in Greece? Well, in, in terms of the impressive youngsters at Montreal camp so far, based on what you see, Jonathan Sirois supposedly impressing in the friendlies down in Florida. Um, Sean Reyes scored in a friendly versus Houston and seems to be turning heads down there as well, which is encouraging. Nathan Saliba is another one. He could be one that might have an Ismail Kone-style rise in 2023. Um, Ilya Iliadish, when he was in Panathinaikos' youth system, he was more of a six when he was making a rise through the academies. Then he turned into more of a box-to-box player once he joined the B team. And to his credit, he was pretty good defensively. He was a decent shuttler of the ball, but his attacking qualities were lacking a little bit. Um, So he could end up being like a six or an eight tweener type at Montreal, but learning off of Victor Monyam, I'm sure, is going to make things a little easier for him. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Montreal camp, it's four like U23 Canadians that are the ones to watch right now because, I mean, Jonathan Sirois, we've seen what he's done across two seasons at CPL. He's given James Pantemis a real push. No Sebastian Brez around. It feels like at the very least Sirwa is going to get some share of the net. So that's obviously promising for goalkeeper prospects. Um, uh, otherwise, uh, in terms of uh, moving up the pitch, there's Rita Zuhir, who's also seemed to quietly have a strong preseason from what those in Montreal have, have suggested. 
Um, and obviously we know that he's someone that was well regarded in the system. Um, then of course there's Nathan Saliba. I mean, anyone I know in Montreal that's worth, you know, whose opinion is is well respected in the, in that place is. <laughs> I've I've only heard good things about Nathan Saliba coming out of there. And you look at his age. You look at you know what he was able to 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 do at the the U23 level. You look at what he was able to to do by you know having an opportunity to trial and go on or train with Bologna. That's someone who. You know he's he's someone to watch in that regard, and then of course Sean Ray. We've seen what he's done at the CPL level. We see you know he's someone who could really stake out a, a claim to start uh, the the season, and then you know try to fill Jordi Jordi Milovic's shoes. So in terms of four U twenty three Canadians, uh, we're talking about Canadian national team who could sneak in. Uh, hot starts from any of those four will will be worth uh, keeping an eye on. In the CPL, Vancouver FC unveiled an updated stadium rendering, and rendering, not renderings. Cavalry FC signed Canadian centre-back Callum Montgomery and Nigerian youth international Udoka Chima, while Mason Trafford announced his retirement. Valor FC signed Canadian midfielder Dante Campbell. HFX Wanderers signed French forward Teo Colomb, who spent some time with the Whitecaps. Jean-Anel SC has been loaned to Atletico Ottawa from CF Montreal, and Patrice Bernier reported that there is interest in Wubens Basias from clubs in Belgium, Holland, and Portugal. From Jade Hyde at Joel Heidebrecht, what's your early prediction for CPL Golden Boot? And two names come to mind for me. Easton Ongaro, back in the league after a bit of a failed trial at the Whitecaps, didn't quite hit with Whitecaps too. And he'll have Manny Aparicio supplying him all year over on Vancouver Island. And of course, they'll have a little bit less travel as well, which could benefit Pacific FC in terms of just being able to go right across the Strait of Georgia and play Vancouver FC. But I also think Joao Morelli coming back in into the league this year um, from injury, and he could certainly get his goal scoring back. And there's definitely some interesting players that have entered that HFX Wanderers squad that could make him interesting. Yeah. But he also relied a ton on penalties. So is he going to get those calls? You, you never know. And if he does, he's a good shout. Um, Osasa de Rosario is my pick because he had 12 goals last year. He might end up leaving in the summer if interest is there, but he did sign a new longer-term deal, which might keep him at the club for this season. So no reason why he can't replicate that form in what is a pretty decently upgraded York side. I mean, imagine Michael Petrasso supplying him with some crosses. That would be quite the fun prospect. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking, I think, Wubens Pasias, the fact he's returning to Forge and the team they have. If he stays have. through the summer. Yeah, if he stays through the summer, that's someone, I guess, yeah, you look at Patrice Bernier, but Wubens Pasias has showed that he can uh, heat up in an instant and, and run hot and get a good run of games. And as we saw last year with Alejandro Diaz winning the, 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 the Golden Boot, sometimes all you need is a half season yeah, of just, just scoring <laughs> a bunch of goals and then you get your move and that's still enough. So well, I'd say... Get that bonus. Yeah, yeah you get your it. goals, so... To echo all, I'd echo all your names. I'd throw Wubens Pasias. And then, you know what? Because why not? It's always good to throw in a bit of a long shot into this. Yeah. I'd say one, if you're talking Halifax, Thiago Coimbra. It's one where it's a very, you know, very long shot. But we're talking about someone who's coming in. I, You know, you yeah. Joao Morelli returning, you know, a much improved Halifax team. Wesley Timoteo as well. Whoever wins that... I love Timoteo. Exactly. Is, oh. Like, whoever ends up winning that striker job between... Because there's Ludwig Kojo Amla from last year. He he showed decently the Swedish yep. uh, striker. There's Massimo Ferrin, the leading scorer of League One Ontario. That's right. There's Sam Salter and there's Teo Colomb. Heck of a battle but yeah, for strikers uh, between those five. 
Whoever wins though is gonna have Morelli and Timoteo feeding them the ball. Yeah. So that's Which why I say that's fact. that's why I'll throw Coimbra or whoever the heck wins that battle yeah. between the rest and then yeah. that's actually a good shot. I like that. Another battle and of course Halifax Wanderers tend to do well in the Golden Boot raid right? yeah. between uh Hakeem Garcia Hakeem now coach Hakeem Garcia yeah. Joao Morelli and then Sam Salter made a push last year Absolutely. so it is in the Halifax DNA and then a long shot also as well to add to your list uh, we have no idea how Vancouver FC is going to look until we really see them play but Sean Hundal mm. he played for Valor and scored some goals he scored a fair few with Inter Miami's second team yep. Um, that's someone where if he gets the right system around him of guys that feeding the ball he's shown at different levels TFC too as well that he can put the ball in the back loves the low net. crosses so I'd say Sean Hundell. And from Archer Lachinsky, Atletico Ottawa's most recent signing, Noah Verhoeven, joins Matthew Arnone, Ben Fisk, and Elliot Simmons to have played for three separate CPL clubs. While the league is still small, will we ever see one true journeyman who plays for every team in the CPL? I think it's possible. Oh, of course it is, yeah. I mean, especially when you have relatively even standing across the teams, right? And if you have CPL experience and you're Canadian... I'm sure you're going to be able to land at a CPL club eventually, right? Um, I'm sure we're going to see it at some point. Maybe not in the next few years, but who knows? Player plays for three or four CPL teams, gets a move elsewhere, comes back, plays for the other half of the league by the time he retires. It's possible. It's one where it's going to be tough because also we have to remember the league will grow at a certain point. At least there's plans to grow, so it's going to be one where someone has to get a good amount now. (laughs) You get a head start. start, So if the league's 16 teams, yeah, it's harder. I mean... Unless you pull a Kai Kamara and use them out like yeah, 12. There it is, yeah. <laughs> so it's one that's, that's Kai Kamara's advice. Yeah, so like, it's, it's, I'd say Noah Verhoeven certainly. What if Kai Kamara becomes that one true journeyman? <laughs> it's possible. Just spends his 40s just shuttling <laughs> around the CPL. Just <laughs> to set that record. I mean, he's already played for two Canadian teams in MLS. Exactly. He's loved both, so he's someone who, uh, yeah. certainly. As long as you have Chipotle's in your local CPL market, he will definitely make a. Make a sojourn out there. And from David Anthony at A underscore Miller 16, chances we ever see the Thunder Bay chill in the CPL. Not a huge city, but no competition and would give Valor fans a semi-doable road trip. Their logo is the best in I Canadian soccer. And the name is amazing too. Like it's it's awesome in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I can certainly see it happening. The population of Thunder Bay, I believe, is somewhere around, is it like 100,000 people? So... Look, if you build the stadium, I think the stadium they have now seats about 2,000-something people. If you make that a 4,000-something seater, you can double the capacity. I'm sure that's possible. I think you can get a decent-sized crowd out to those games, especially if, if it's a summer league. And I think the winters, or fall and spring, I should say, are relatively mild enough to play in. If the men can play in minus 7 with minus 17 windchill in Edmonton for 90 minutes, I imagine... The temperatures aren't that bad in Thunder Bay that they can still have a season there. And it would target a local market, one that has no competition and something that the CPL should look at. So, yeah, I'm open to the idea. Plus, it'd also be cool to have a professional team in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And they have a decent track record of supporting sports in Thunder Bay as well. The university hockey team, the Lakehead Thunderwolves, regularly gets 2,500 people out to a game, and that's not seen across U Sports Hockey in Canada. They don't have a ton of athletics programs at Lakehead University, but Shocker. they do get a good crowd for the hockey team. So I imagine that they can put together a decent crowd for a professional team that's not there right now. Oh, exactly. I'm all for it. Like, those are markets that the CPL should be targeting. Maybe not, 
you know, specifically Thunder Bay all the time, but markets like it where you can establish a strong local footprint where they do support local sports, whether it's university or semi-professional, what have you. So I'm very open to that idea. After a wave of expansion to the prairies and Quebec and the Atlantic, yeah, Thunder Bay is somewhere to, to be looked at. So it's not one you should be maybe... Like I'd, I'd expect to see like right away, just, you know, already teams in Ontario got to gotta get in that Quebec market and of course the yes. prairies but I think it's one that long term if we're talking once the league's at 15 20 25 you want to grow by hitting those sort of markets and then really growing uh, those sorts of uh, environments and that'll be it for episode 109 of the northern football podcast certainly a lot to talk about in Canadian soccer and we'll have a lot more to talk about with the U17 men's tournament continuing on the she believes cup starting apparently the women's national team has something set up in protest for tomorrow's game against the U.S. women's national team. But for Alex, for Peter, I've been Ben. Thanks so much for tuning in to episode 109 of the Northern Football Podcast, and we'll be back next week.